Welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. A lot of uh, big news this week about things moving to the cloud. We got announcements this week from Microsoft about their Windows 365 initiative. Now, Ross, you can uh, probably speak to some of this. Virtualization of, of desktops is not a new thing for Microsoft. They've been pushing in this domain for a very long time, but Windows 365 really brings some uh, unique features and is very well-timed for, I think, uh, an environment where uh, Microsoft is very committed to a hybrid workforce. And at the same time, they're looking to hire new workers that may start off remote. So uh, it feels to me like the natural collision of bring your own device combined with a hybrid remote workforce. Sure. And, and of course, Microsoft, not the only one that has been working on virtualization for many years. Uh, certainly Citrix, uh, a pioneer in that area uh, and uh, has evolved into uh, you know, a, a major, uh, major player uh, based on uh, virtualization technology. Uh, and there have been others as well. But, uh, but I think one of the things that sets this apart is the streamlined way that Microsoft has gone about it. It, it all happens through a web browser. Uh, to me, it seems like somewhat of an end game uh, in terms of what a, a number of companies have been working on for years, including Microsoft, in terms of uh, these, these cloud streaming game uh, initiatives, because if you can stream games with good performance, you can stream just about anything. So, you know, Windows uh, as, as a service uh, in the most literal <laughs> uh, sense that it, it's been offered uh, is, uh, is, is one output of that. We'll, of course, have, have more to say about uh, cloud gaming uh, in a bit. You know, this also happens at a time when, when Microsoft is uh, upgrading Windows. Uh, Windows 11 will be offered uh, under this configuration. And, of course, with Windows 11, yet, you know, an even broader software library uh, than you have had in the past in terms of supporting uh, Android uh, apps. So, Sean, I, you know, I think you're, you're definitely spot on in terms of the timing of this in supporting this, this hybrid environment. Uh, but th there's also timing in terms of where Microsoft is in its upgrade cycle uh, and also where we are in terms of uh, continued progress on the wireless bandwidth side as uh, 5G uh, continues to roll out uh, and uh, makes it more palatable to run Windows on, on uh, a range of devices. Uh, also, I think, you know, a, a convergence of, of hardware uh, is helping as well. Uh, the iPad years ago uh, didn't really have a, a keyboard, didn't have cursor support. Uh, so it was far more difficult to make a desktop operating system like Windows uh, work well on it. Uh, that's less the case these days. So if you want to stay in an iPad environment uh, for most of the time, but uh, occasionally you need access to, for example, the full version of Microsoft Office as opposed to the somewhat stripped down iPad uh, mobile version, then you can uh, do that. And of course, not just Office, but really any Windows application, including ones that might require very uh, demanding hardware, which has been 
the other uh, thing that's been explored through these gaming initiatives, not just to deliver games with good performance, but to deliver games that far exceed the hardware capabilities of the client device because everything is rendered in the cloud. I think it also highlights the maturity of cloud. Cloud has obviously very stable, become very stable, but also the perception of its stability and availability have improved where people now accept it as a as a viable alternative to something that's happening on a, a fixed localized machine. Uh, in the past, you know, businesses might have provided new employees with a brand new PC, and so the the virtualization of that PC uh, allowed them to access it remotely. Uh, the best case, you know, I think of that is you've left your laptop or your desktop at the office, you're at home, or you're you're remote, and you're able to access information off of that machine when you were working from home, then you don't have to carry a desktop back and forth or a laptop back and forth. Uh, but this was all about accessing a dedicated piece of, of hardware that had been most likely assigned to you by an, an IT team. Uh, this move to Windows 365 will essentially allow businesses to create virtual machines for users. So if they want to stick with a Mac or if they have their own PC and they're remote, then the IT team doesn't have to send out a new laptop to them, doesn't have to replace it when it's stolen, doesn't have to fix it when it's broken. So it will change, I think, the focus of the the IT staff, which has increasingly been tasked with handling cybersecurity and focusing a lot more attention on cybersecurity and less attention on the, the uh, you know, nuts and bolts of of maintaining a physical IT environment. So I think this is at the same time that it might change how users access information. It also changes the role that that business IT teams are, are going to be tasked with and where they're going to be focused on. Oh, yeah. I mean, control security has long been an argument in favor of more centralized uh, computing. Uh, and I think one of the lessons of the pandemic was that people need to get work done under sometimes uh, pressing circumstances. Uh, for example, uh, we saw a surge in Chromebooks uh, over the course of uh, 2020. Uh, those can't natively run uh, Windows apps, but they certainly have a competent web browser. Uh, and so now you can deliver uh, a full Windows experience to something you know that you can get for under three hundred dollars, maybe under two hundred fifty dollars. You know, grab your kids, uh, your, your grab grab your kids' computer that uh, that you know they they use to uh, to do uh, homework um, that's assigned through Google Classroom, uh, and just go to a, a web address and bam, you know now you have a, a fully managed, fully provisioned. Windows PC that you can make disappear just by closing a window. And you won't have to use VPNs. You won't have to, right. uh, you know, manage some of those security protocols that you've had to manage in the past. Also, you're not going to be able to download errant Ma programs malware, that are emailed right. to you, malware, you know, that that is sent and then uh, deploys on the, uh, the 
network of the business. So there are a lot of security reasons to like this. I think there's a lot of reasons to like this. So uh, they haven't announced pricing yet. They'll announce it when it launches here in the coming months. But I think it is something to to look for. And it makes a lot of sense for small remote teams or, or very large organizations that have uh, remote workers. Even arguably, I think it makes sense for companies that want to to try to improve their security profile in a, a world with you know significant cybersecurity threats. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see what the bandwidth situation is uh, for uh, potential users of this. But uh, it is worth mentioning uh, that this is a corporate option, really only at this point. Uh, Microsoft is not making it available to consumers, uh, at least for now. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it's certainly structured in a way. Uh, and if it follows the example of Microsoft 365, uh, there could it would not be surprising at all to see them offer this uh, directly to consumers uh, in in the future. Uh, there, they probably would face more blowback from their hardware partners uh, because they could possibly push back the, uh, the hardware refresh cycle. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it's definitely an endorsement that uh, Microsoft is uh, releasing this now uh, and is, uh, is making it so accessible. And it is available to businesses of one, which mm-hmm. do look a lot like consumers. So <laughs> if you think this is a good fit for you, then you can create a, a small business and uh, and move in this direction. So it could sure. be really interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it has also an appeal to education, mm. if this could be a valuable tool for education. Schools, as, as we went into quarantine and we went to remote, had to figure out how to get hardware into the hands of students and then also how to troubleshoot their issues, how to upgrade their systems remotely, so this could be a very, very good solution for school districts as they, uh, you know, arguably are all going back into the classroom, but still wanting to find a better way of streamlining the management of, of that hardware. So something to watch there as well. Uh, in other, shall we say, cloud-related news, Netflix has finally confirmed that they are expanding into video games. They announced the hire of Mike Verdu, who was Facebook's VP of AR VR content. And this is something we've talked a lot about on the podcast. It's a very natural place for Netflix to go. And uh, gaming arguably has already been moving toward the cloud. Uh, Stream was for a while the fringe player in, in cloud gaming, really trying to expand that. But we've seen all of the major platforms move in that direction, especially Xbox. You've had the launch of other platforms like Amazon's Luna, which many touted as the Netflix for games. I'm sure Netflix didn't uh, love that. And so they are coming out with the actual Netflix for games. It's still very early, so it'll probably be some time before we see a, a launch. But I think it's a, a very natural fit for Netflix as they uh, move their expansion goals and objectives away from just territories and uh, and geographic areas towards other content. And it comes at a time when Netflix is having to battle so many platforms that have been stood up over the last year, 
by content owners as they've pulled their content away from Netflix and created their their own streaming platform, Paramount being a, an example of that, but there are many, of course. So um, a, a big announcement for Netflix and more to come in that in the coming months. Yeah, there's a, a few elements to this that I think are uh, worth noting. First, uh, we've seen a number of different models around the spectrum of buying games, renting games, uh, streaming games, you know, where does the game live? Do you have to purchase it? Is it, is it part of an all you can eat service? Uh, you know, we've, we've seen Nvidia, for example, offer a free tier, uh, of, uh, GeForce now, uh, that allows you to play games online with, with some limitations. We've seen Stadia where, you know, they provide access to some games, but really it's about enabling multiplayer on games you purchase. Um, and then you've got the uh, the Microsoft model, which is the bu- cloud-based buffet model, uh, all you can eat. And I would imagine that Netflix, given its uh, its history and uh, how it builds its customers, would uh, would likely pursue that. You know, years ago there were um, rumors, uh, suggestions uh, that it should purchase GameFly, uh, which was kind of the old uh, Netflix uh, disc by mail kind of uh, service. Uh, it never went there. Uh, and so even though Gamefly is still around, uh, and so it is um, uh, pursuing uh, this, uh, this, this streaming model. I think one advantage that Netflix has uh, is that if it can deliver these, uh, the, the service through its existing application, um, that could be a huge uh, head start for, for its gaming initiatives. The Netflix client is virtually everywhere, uh, as opposed to a number of these uh, newer services that are still looking to make deals with, with TV makers, with Roku, with, with Amazon for Fire TV. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's holding them back uh, in, in the living room. Uh, although, like those guys, uh, Netflix will need to figure out kind of what the controller situation is. You know, maybe you, if you sign up for a year of their gaming service, you know, you get a free controller. Maybe they license the controller. You know, maybe they offer their own like Google did. But anyway, you know, this, this also allows them to invest in original gaming content. Uh, you know, Netflix has had success in, uh, in, in differentiating via proprietary content that they own. Uh, that model's been in place in the gaming industry for many years. Uh, and so that's an area, I mean, it's very different dynamics, uh, but at least they have experience with, with that model. So uh, I'd, I'd say those are uh, a couple of uh, you know, potential advantages that, that Netflix has coming into this market uh, even though they're they're entering very late at this point. They're entering late into the gaming market, but arguably it's still pretty early days in uh, cloud gaming um, and a move away from the core platforms of PlayStation, Xbox, and Nintendo. I think there's still some opportunity there to uh, to to bring in other experiences to your point that netflix client is on every device and so it will be really interesting to see how this will look when you're in front of a television where you've got a game console but also when you're on mobile and and mike verde 
spent a year and a half as head of EA Mobile before he went over to Facebook. So arguably you can use, you could have it built in a virtual controller or use the accelerometer and, and gyroscopes of the of the phone to play the game. So there could be some really interesting opportunities that uh, show up on the mobile space as well, where I would imagine Netflix has a strong grasp, but I would bet the bulk of their time spent is not on mobile devices. I would imagine that it's probably on, on other devices, maybe, maybe the tablet, but I would bet still the, the majority of time spent is on large screen devices. And so this moves them as a key player on small screen devices. So that will be interesting. You look at Amazon and what they've tried to do with uh, with Luna, they've invested in uh, original content, if you will. They're building out their own game studios and they have staff that is developing games. And uh, it's still very early for them, but they seem committed to that space. And, and of course, uh, you know, bought Twitch a while ago to, uh, to to play there as well. So I think that it'll be interesting to see if Netflix goes that same route, if they build out their own studio and have developers that are working full-time for them, or if they, you know, do what they have done with original content for the most part, which is uh, buy content that's developed by, by third parties. So it'll be interesting to see what they do there. Yeah. A few reactions there. I think mobile is very interesting because it, uh, in part negates my uh, my integrated application argument, uh, at least on iOS, right? Uh, Apple has not allowed uh, any apps to offer uh, basically integrated game streaming on iOS. So Microsoft, Google, et cetera, have all had to reach iOS through, uh, through the browser. Uh, so if Netflix wants to offer its games on iOS or iPadOS, that's uh, the route they're presumably going to have to take. Uh, this idea of the controller, yes, certainly uh, Microsoft, for example, has been strongly encouraging its developers to support touch controls in games that were originally uh, designed for the PC or Xbox. That said, <laughs> um, while there, there aren't a lot of great solutions out now, uh, we, we can talk about one in a minute, uh, it, it's often very difficult to recreate, you know, that that high-end, fun, uh, same level of fun gaming experience on mobile using touch controls uh, as, as it is with with a dedicated controller. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's part of what has helped contribute to the success of the Nintendo Switch. Uh, and uh, you know, just uh, recently we saw that Valve uh, is uh, going to move forward with uh, the Steam Deck, uh, which is a Switch-like device that uh, runs games from Steam uh, and uh, should have access to uh, a much broader uh, software library, uh, you know, kind of a, a PC-level uh, software library. Uh, we've seen a number of other manufacturers, uh, Lenovo, uh, Alienware from Dell, tease uh, these kinds of devices, but so far we really haven't seen any come to market. So uh, it's it's likely a uh, more of a niche device. I, I think they're looking at uh, 399, uh, you know, which is not crazy, uh, you know, particularly if you spend a lot of your gaming time on mobile, uh, but, uh, but it's definitely an interesting uh, direction to 
to try to take that PC slash console game experience uh, and uh, and make it mobile. And you know, we'll see how open uh, that device is to to browser based gaming, uh, which could make it a universal client for a lot of these uh, remote services, just like uh, just like the iPhone. Well, and the and the Steam Deck also has a USB C port, so you can connect it to a bigger screen hmm. uh, well, device or you, or you, or, you, or a external controller if you, you know, or an external controller. A, yep, if you want to use there. external controllers. So. Sure. Uh, that plans are to have that start shipping in December, right in line with uh, with holiday. Uh, you can pre-order it now. It will be interesting, I, I think, as an aside to see if they are able to uh, deliver the, the product in that time horizon, given all of the supply constraints mm-hmm. that we are seeing in the, the supply chains. So it will be, a, I think, a difficult uh, challenge for them to meet, given just all the dynamics happening there. And they're they're a new player in, uh, if you will, del- delivering a product, a hardware product in time. If there were Xbox, I think it would be a little bit of a different story because Microsoft has a lot of experience in managing those supply chain dynamics. So it'll be interesting to see how they do there. Right, but you know, it didn't do anything for them <laughs> last holiday season, right? Or or Sony, uh, and so I think th- that'll be really interesting to see the competitive dynamics if. If Sony uh, and uh, Microsoft can get volumes going uh, for the latest generation of their consoles and alleviate the uh, supply constraints uh, that uh, will be in the market, uh, that that we've seen in the market throughout 2021 uh, so far. There are going to be some other interesting players uh, vying for uh, gaming dollars this holiday season. Uh, There's the... uh, uh, the 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 rebirth of Intellivision, uh, which uh, uh, you know was a console from the '80s and is being brought back as a very family-friendly uh, console with with no uh, you know R-rated games, uh, with nothing that includes excessive violence or or profanity. Uh, which uh, which with isn't none going of to the games any... that my kids want to play, Ross. It's, well, uh, going to have uh, no, it's going to have none of the games my kids may, want may, to play. May, maybe not your kids, but you know, <laughs> uh, moral parents uh, have. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, there, there certainly are parents who, a lot of parents who care about that kind of thing, and maybe for younger kids also. That's yeah. that's uh, another concern. So, in other news, we saw that uh, Twitter is saying. Goodbye to Fleets, retiring its story-like service on August 3rd, citing low adoption. And uh, what will fill that that place right now, if you go to Twitter, you'll see the Fleets there at the top. They're going to go ahead and have that replaced with their audio service, uh, which I think is uh, it's interesting and probably also influenced part of the move there, not just the low adoption of fleets mm. or the low use of fleets, but also real estate is in limited supply King. when you're yep. these platforms. And so they have to figure out what are they going to promote and what are they going to uh, downplay? And this uh, led to the closure of, of fleets happening the beginning of next month. And at the same time, I think it it indicates their desire to grow their audio presence and have that Clubhouse-like experience growing there. And at the same time this week, we saw that Clubhouse is debuting uh, Backchannel, which is a DM-featured support 
service, which will allow you to uh, message groups or, or other players uh, coming to that service. Clubhouse announced will be images or videos coming later. So um, I think we've seen the importance of these messaging type platforms. If you look at Discord and, and others, and so it'll be interesting to see how Clubhouse emerges and evolves over time as well. So this is a theme we've talked about a lot on the podcast over the past few weeks, uh, social services picking up uh, each other's features and borrowing each other's features. Uh, you know, I, we, we spoke about Instagram a little while back uh, and whether uh, how, how elastic uh, the service was and uh, you offered that that you thought it was pretty elastic uh, at at this point, and I, I think there's a strong argument for that. Uh, I wonder whether that's the case for Clubhouse. Uh, you know, are they taking their eye off the ball a little early in trying to become, you know, Instagram plus Twitter, you know, uh, as opposed to sticking to this audio programming? And does it say something about their value that they feel the need? to shift into these other media, uh, maybe because audio is just not proving, an audio only service is, is not proving uh, as, as sticky or compelling uh, as it seemed perhaps uh, with, with some of the early adopters. Uh, an interesting move by, by Clubhouse uh, as, it, uh, as, as competitors try to capitalize on its core strength uh, kind of unusual to try to do everything that much bigger guys are are doing. I think Clubhouse is at a very difficult crossroads where they need to expand on the momentum that that they had in those early days, and you saw them do it by launching an, an Android client so that you could uh, you know have the service on Android. Initially, it was iOS only. We did see some pickup there when that happened. But I think they're trying to really take advantage of the momentum at a time when I would argue the user base is shifting. So this service made a lot of sense when we were locked in our homes in a, in a quarantine during the middle of a pandemic. Now we're getting out, we're, we're moving more. And so I think just dedicating yourself to an audio feed which is really almost like an event type feed. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is going to be competing against real in-person events, live events that people are going to start to attend again. And so I think it's just going to be very difficult for them. And I think that's why they're, why they're moving into some of these other features so they can take advantage of some of the momentum. Uh, at the same time, I think that uh, Twitter did a great job in launching spaces and moving into that space. And I think they were able to take some of the uh, uh, momentum that Clubhouse was enjoying. Now, whether that's a viable new feature for Twitter, whether whether it stays as a, a viable feature for Twitter remains to be seen. But Twitter has the user base. And I think that's one of the advantages that they have. And, and it highlights how important having that user base is, how hard it is to introduce new features and new services when you don't have the critical mass of players. Well, it's always fun to speculate on uh, where companies might end up. And uh, if uh, Clubhouse were to decide that it uh, was open to acquisition, uh, I, I think there are a few services that would be a good match for it. I mean, Snap uh, seems highly 
complementary, for example, you know, very strong in the imaging space, uh, has done some very cool work with with AR in terms of uh, capitalizing on that mobile experience that you talk about, Sean. Uh, you know, TikTok to me seems a little more entertainment oriented, uh, whereas Snap is sort of more communication oriented. But but yes. You know, it, it it would it would certainly as as some of these larger networks are are looking at this audio broadcasting and audio communication as a feature. It, it you know you you look to companies for which uh, it would be a, a very complementary feature, uh, and uh, Snap strikes me as uh, as one of those uh, if uh, if the valuation were right for, for Snap, not for Clubhouse. <laughs> you and you brought up TikTok. Uh, we heard this week that uh, YouTube is expanding shorts, which had launched in India, expanded to 26 countries. It'll now be available in over 100 countries. This is their TikTok competitor to take advantage of being really the, the video platform that they are and uh, pulling in those users who are, are moving to TikTok for short, often entertaining videos. So YouTube is quickly trying to expand that uh, to to combat the uh, the movement of time and players to TikTok and offer that service on their own platform. We'll end this week's episode of Techspansive there. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>